Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Pastor Jeff Stewart. It is every uh, pastor's hope that people who come here will not gloss over what we do, because we ourselves can do that. I know in my own life. We see the words on the screen. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin on the cross. We need to think about those words. We need to think about what we celebrated here. There are times where we may come in here because we're used to doing this once a month and have it become a mindless ritual. That's the reality of who we are. When I grew up in the Episcopal Church, we celebrated this every week. We call it the Eucharist. And there were times where I sensed my sin upon the cross. But I have to confess to you, there were times when I had other things on my mind. Uh, especially when I was a teenager and the hormones were raging. Communion was an opportunity to check out all the babes going up to take communion. <laughs> and I wasn't thinking about what it was that Christ did, what Christ said. I was thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about my sin on the cross. As a matter of fact, I was showing the necessity of Christ dying for me because I was thinking of myself. Today we're uh, starting a two-week series, a short uh, series called Missing the Mark, and today something synonymous to that is evasive target. And we're going to talk about the area of sin. It's a word that we don't like, my sin upon the cross, but we have to face up to it. We are confronted. If you love this resource, and we do love this resource here, you are confronted with it. There's no getting around it. You can't avoid this topic. And we look at it and hear it all the time in the messages. A few weeks ago we were hearing about the uh, fruit of the Spirit. And the opposite of that in Galatians 5 are the deeds of the flesh. There's sort of this conflict. Now, of course, the church has abused, historically, talking about sin. In the late 19th century, I believe it was, was Jonathan Edwards had this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it was called The Great Awakening. It started a trend where we were... The church were trying to scare people into following Christ, as if, you know, uh, in the message there was just this little person that we were on a little thin thread with frayed parts to it, holding over the pits of hell, and if he did anything wrong, God let go. There's been a lot of that culturally followed that. Turn or burn, repent or be sent, you know, trying to scare you into following Christ. But we can't escape some of those aspects of judgment in here. It's characterized. When we talk about sin, then if you're a product of the 60s, like I am growing up through the 60s, we kind of went into a sin light mode where you do anything you want, rebel against systems, rebel against authority. And then all of a sudden, well, you know, if you're naturally inclined to do it, just go ahead and do it and check it out and experiment, try it. And so we sort of glossed over and even in the church, it it infected the church where we just kind of glossed over the area of sin. But we need to have a good balanced approach when we talk about this subject. There was a legendary quotation by Calvin Coolidge, President Calvin Coolidge. I don't know if it's true, but everywhere I've read it said it was legendary, where he went to a a church once, and somebody asked him what the preacher talked about, and he said he talked about sin. And somebody asked him, well, what did he say about it? And Calvin Coolidge, a man of few words, said, well, he's against it. (laughs) But that's the characterization we have about sin. It's wrong. We know it is. We sing about it. We know what it is. And do we ignore it? We can't ignore it. It is in here. Sin, guilt, iniquity, transgression, all that stuff that goes against what 
God desires is mentioned over thousands of times in this resource. And what I want to do is to look at this resource and see the characterization of it. A little more serious today, a little more analytical, brutally honest, and downright personal, but for a purpose. What I think God intends when you look at this. I want to see the, I want you to kind of analytically first look at the characterization of sin, because I think if we understand it in God's light, then we have an understanding of ourselves. We understand and have an understanding of God's grace. This resource is a valuable resource. The Old Testament we refer to is about three-fourths of this. It deals with Israel before Christ. And the most often characterization of sin among many is one that has to do with lapse. L-A-P-S-E. Or guilt. You see that in the law. It's often translated as guilt. But the word chata actually means lapse. Now we do that, don't we? That's, that's characteristic of us, lapsing, when we do what we want to for ourselves. And it's all over the place there. It's characterized as lapse or guilt. Here's an example of that. Right off the bat, if you're reading the first part of the Bible, you get into Genesis, you don't have to go but four chapters to see this word or this characterization in verses 6 and 7. It said, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, pretty simple, basic, Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin, chata, lapsing, is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. You must master the lapsing, the guilt, because it's crouching at the door. It wants to have you. If you're familiar with the story, it doesn't take very long after Adam and Eve sinned that their sons sin. There's these offerings brought to God, and one is better than the other for some reason, and Cain is jealous. And what does he do? He kills his brother. It's the first recorded murder, crouching at the door. You can't blame it on roid rage. It was jealousy. He was just not accepting what God was accepted accepted in the offerings given to them. And so that's what we see. We see this lapsing. And he kills. That's the Old Testament characterization. There's other characterizations, but that one seems to be the most prominent, guilt and lapsing. The New Testament was written in a different culture. It was the Greek culture. And they didn't have a word that was like lapse, so they used a word that was characterized as off-target. Sin is off-target. It's characterized most of the time in the New Testament, the last quarter of the Bible, as being off-target. Hamartia. That's what it literally means. You see the picture of the target on there. You're aiming for the bullseye, but you're off target. You can't hit it. That's how it's characterized. Here's an example of that in John 8, 33 and 34. These are the Pharisees talking. They answered him, Jesus. Jesus first said, if you believe the truth, two shall set you free. That's what they said. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins, who is off target, homartia, is a slave to being off target, homartia, being way remiss of what God intended. We combine all of these things. If you look at the scriptures throughout, the Hebrew culture and the Greek culture of God's people, and he chose to be that way. If we combine all these things, being off target and lapsing in guilt, we come up with, I think, with the Bible characterizing sin as a natural inclination. Think about lapsing and think about off-target. Natural inclination. We've got a short little word that I think characterizes it a lot better. 
It's the word want. W-A-N-T. Our natural inclination. You use the term all the time. You know that you even hear in family arguments or conflicts at work that there's a lot of that word thrown around. Want, 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 want. And the ones differ, don't they? It's in, in the Greek, it's, it means fellow. It means it's a, a desire that you have or a, a will or a resolve. And we are resolved all the time in our lives. That's what want is. Listen to what Paul says in two passages. And listen to what the dilemma is. Listen to what the dilemma is. Romans 7.19. Paul says this. He struggles. For what I do is not the good I want to do. That sounds like lapsing, doesn't it? That No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then in Galatians 5.17, he has these words. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Fellow, he uses those in both passages. Now, what is it? Which is it? There's kind of a dualistic nature. At first he says, the good I want to do, I don't do. I want to do this good. And in the end he says, the, the sins of the flesh is you, so that you do not do what you want. Which is it? Well, if we're following God, if we're following Christ, there is a desire, resolve to do what he teaches And so we really want to do that, but then again, we really don't want to. And that's why Paul is saying, oh, why do I keep doing this? I want to do this, but I really want to do this. And that's what we have in our own lives. That's what I struggle with. You see the constant battle? There's a will. There was a a resolve. There was this lapsing. There's a determination. And it becomes ambivalent. Now, let me give you an example. As a follower, you might say this. Uh, we got a family reunion coming up, and I'm going to go to that family reunion, and I'm going to be a good boy. You know, I got those cousins there that I like, but there's that one cousin. And I remember what happened last time. I'm a follower of yours, Christ, so I want to be good, and I want to show your character. So this is what I want to do, even though that cousin is a scumbag. And that cousin is ruthless. And I'm going to try to shut up when they say something. But you know what happens. You know what happens. I know what happens because I do it myself. I just got back from vacation. And there's that one cousin or that one sister-in-law or that one brother-in-law. Example, example. And you try not to because you're a follower. And this is what you want to do, but you end up doing what you want to do. You understand what he's saying? There's two sets of will and ambivalence there of what we want to do. That's the hamartia. That's missing the mark. It's a conflict. It happens. There's two sets of wants. You can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. It happens. Guilt. There's laughs. We're off target. There's a natural inclination. That's how it characterizes it. Now, we know this. We can go now, right? No, sorry. I got a few more minutes. You got to wait. Think of what we learned But think of what we have to do. We know this, but what do we do? I think it helps to ask a few questions if you're a follower of Christ. If you have this struggle, this conflict that Paul is talking about. And I know you do, because I do. What do we do? I think we need to ask a few questions. First of all, the first question would be, what is the target? And we've got this picture of Hamartia being off target. What is the target? I think that's pretty simple. We have to go back to the beginning 
for that answer. It's this, reflecting God's image. It's reflecting God's character. That's how we started out. That's what he did in the beginning. A few verses in Genesis 1 will show that. God said, let us make man in our image. He made everything else. He goes, let us make man in our image. He never said that about the fishes or, the, or all the other things. He said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made. He was finished. It was very good. That's what the target is, reflecting God's character and his image. But, you know, if you're reading the Bible for the very first time, it doesn't take very long for you to figure out that something went awry. Something happened right in the very beginning. It goes from very good to Adam and Eve turning and doing what they want to for themselves and the consequences of it brought on by themselves. And God isn't just slapping them and letting go of them. He's saying, because you did this, and he says to the woman, there'd be pain in childbirth. He said, because you did this, to the man, the, the ground is going to be broken with sweat and both are going to turn to the ground because it's consequential. The chaos was brought about by us, by turning toward ourselves. It doesn't take very long to see that. And we have the chaos from that point even now to last Wednesday when a bridge falls down in Minneapolis and innocent people are killed. Nobody just said, I'm bad, I'm going to get knocked. It's just chaos. It's brokenness. Because you did this. It's not God's will. It's because you did this. We went from very good because you did this. He didn't say we were very bad. He just said, because you did this, there's consequences. That's the target. Now, how far are we off the target? That's another question we need to ask. How far are we off? I think we fool ourselves sometimes. It characterizes it here pretty harshly. To what degree are we off? Well, I'll tell you. Mathematically, 180. We're 180 degrees off. If you know geometry, I never got to take geometry because I kept slipping up through algebra. I never understood that. Geometry seemed more practical and algebra didn't. But, but I know about geometry because I've made a garden and I've done that stuff. 180 degrees is the opposite, isn't it? That's how this characterizes it. It's the complete opposite. We fool ourselves into thinking, I do this myself. You know, I'm going to proceed with God here, and God, you're like where that exit sign is, but I'm going to kind of veer off and do what I want to for a little while. I got you in my peripheral vision, God. That's not the characterization of it. No, and when you turn toward yourself, you're going to just like this. I don't know you exist. I'm determined to live this way. That's how far off target we are. That's how completely awry we can go. And we experience that spiritually, and sometimes we experience that in situations that we have in our own life. We see that we turn completely away from God, that we're supposed to be made in his image, and that we're turned away 180 degrees. Listen to these passages. By Genesis 6, we see God preparing to judge the world. The world, just before he saved Noah and his family, we read these words in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. He observed it. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So we have the story of Noah's flood, judgment. God shows something, the consequences of what will take place because we live our own lives. 
And what did he do? He saved a few people in this little boat and some animals, and he redeemed them. Did the world change after that? No, because when the dry land came, the water came down, the dry land settled, and Noah got up and he built this little altar. And it says right in a few chapters later, 821, never again, God says, well, I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Well, what's the deal with that? Why well, have the flood? Well, there's a story there of God's grace and redemption and remnant and carrying on and loving the human race despite the condition. That's what he is doing for us today. That's what God does. And we see it. He's right on the mark when he says that because Noah proves it the next chapter because he gets trashed on wine. He has his vineyard. He gets trashed on wine and he lays in the buff in the tent and his kids have to cover him up. Things didn't change. He lived for himself. He turned his back on God. Now, you know, imagine all that time on the ark and the animals. Got to have a little respite. That's what he entitled himself to. I'm going to touch on this subject next week a little bit about addictions and stuff. It didn't take very long, any of the time, to see where we're headed. We're 180 degrees off the mark. We're off target. How can we best relate this? Well, I've got an illustration of the story. thought you'd like this. This was not funny at the time it happened. It's funny now, I can laugh at it now, but it wasn't funny at the time it happened. Some of you know that before I got back in the ministry, I kind of had a little bit of a hiatus of three years working in the corporate world. I worked for Patterson Dental Supply Incorporated in Denver, Colorado, and I sold this $100,000 CAD CAM machine to dentists. And uh, hard to sell. A lot of people wanted to see this thing because they were curious about it. So I had to go around Colorado and Wyoming, never been there. This is the days before GPS was available to us. And I decided, well, I'm a guy in Gunnison, Colorado, wants to see this system. So here I am in Aurora, and Gunnison's over here. So I do a little map quest thing, and I follow the map quest, and it kind of takes me through this valley, real pretty. I get down here, and I turn on 50 and get to Gunnison. I do the uh, demonstration for him, all that stuff, eat supper, and then the sun goes down in the winter. So I'm going to head back. So when I head back, I want to make good time, get there before too late. And I go back up here, and I head up here, and all of a sudden something happens. I go, wait a minute, I don't remember this town. I don't remember this light. I don't remember that store. Oh, it, well, I had my mind on other things. So maybe I'm a little bit off here, over here or something. Maybe I made a wrong turn. So I stop and I ask a guy. I show him the map, and I said, where am I on this map? I point to the map. And he says, you're not here. He grabbed my wrist, and he says, you're here. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I thought, what happened? I was in denial. It took me about 20 minutes to accept that. And when I started looking at the map and seeing, you know, little signs and towns and stuff that were nearby, they go, how did I do that? I was 180 degrees off. This is what I actually did. I went out here from Gunnison, and I kind of took a right here and went down this road and thought, thinking I was going up here, and I ended up down there, almost to the New Mexico border. <laughs> so how do I get back? And the guy tells me. He gets me back on track, and I get back eventually. But you see where I was? I was in denial. I was completely awry of where I thought I should have been, and I wasn't where I sh- could have been, and I thought I should have been there. And I wanted to know, how do I get back on track? And the guy did me a favor. I missed the mark. My target evaded me, and he did me a favor. Here are the questions. How do we get back on track? 
Well, two words that are critical, I think, for us to know and understand as followers of Christ. Repent and confess. Those words have been abused historically. They have good, valuable meaning if we look at them the way they were meant to be understood. Repent and confess. Repent literally means about face. We're 180 degrees turn and we have to turn. That's what repent is. Completely turn is metanoeo. We're turning completely away from where we're headed, going back where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be there. And you see the word in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, when John introduces Jesus. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, turn around, do it about face, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then we see it also in characterized when Jesus was walking about in Luke 15, 7. He goes, I tell you the truth. That in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who doesn't about face, who repents, than over 99 righteous people, put those in quotes, people who think they're righteous, persons who do not need, who don't think they need to repent. That's repent. We need to do that. The other one is confess. Now that conjures up a lot. It doesn't merely involve a little booth with a cup couple prayers said in a formula to get you off the hook. Some of you have that upbringing. But it really means to agree with God. That's homo legeo. Homo means same. Legeo means I say. I say the same. And so with a combination of those things, it is full circle when we're confronted with what we have here. Listen to what 1 John 1, 8, 9 says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we claim that we're not awry, if we claim that we don't lapse, if we claim that we're not off target, we're lying. But if we confess, if we say the same, if we agree about that, he's faithful, he's just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a gift that is. It's a full circle. I think we're guilty of lapsing and sin is crouching and always desiring us. And we recognize that we're off target. We have this natural inclination to proceed that way. But as followers, we can repent and we can confess. I think we've made a mistake of repentance and confession historically in the church. Recent history, you re- repent would be, that's your initiation. You come down here and you accept the invitation at the altar. And then confession is like periodic dues that you pay along the way. I think it's continual. I think that's how it's characterized in here. Where we are turning away from God, doing anything that we desire for ourselves, we've got our back turned and we go, oh, I'm supposed to be headed that way. I'm turning God. And I'm saying, you're right. You are absolutely right. That direction is wrong. In little ways and in small ways and in big ways. It's not the direction you want me to go. I'm turning around saying, you're right, I'm heading back. This is the way it should be. That's the way it's been in my life. And when I understand that, I don't get off here and think that I'm okay. I know that I've got my back turned because it's only me that I want to serve. And I say the same, and I turn around and say, you are right. We need to reflect your image. It's evading us, Lord. We need help. And that's another question. Can God help us? You bet. The answer is yes. God can help us. There's all these little no's. And sometimes we see them as big no's. But there's a huge yes behind every little no. It's abundant life. It's forgiveness. It's new life. 
that Christ offers us. God can help us. He wants to give us help. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, 8, 5, 8, and 10. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, we need help. When we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We call that good news. That's good news. The way back, the track back is always open. It's not closed off. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that it's closed off. It's good news. We call it communion. Here, it's good news. The track back is always open. When I grew up in the Episcopal Church, it was called the Eucharist. I didn't know what that meant, but I loved the meaning of the word in the very deepest sense. It means good. You is good. And charisma means favor. It's good favor. Here, free for you. Always. It's good favor. It's, it's a gift offered freely. When I was at the southern extreme of Colorado, I did a 180. I repented. Otherwise, I would have had a, been like Bugs Bunny and had to make a left point in Albuquerque because I was heading that way. <laughs> but I also agreed that it was not where I thought I was. That denial took a while. And I turned and I went awry as much as I hated to admit and I paid for it with ridicule. Because when I got back to the office and told other people about it, they had fun with that one. When I went to lunch, I came back to lunch, they had a map above my desk of the office. <laughs> you are here. Coffee's here. This is your car. This is the trash bin. Water here. Make sure you walk around the partition. They had a ball with it. Because I prided myself. But when I turn back seriously and I think about that story, it still touches me when I think about it. Because I was lost. I mean, it was confused and it frustrated me. And the guy that told me how to get back, you know, it, it took a lot more than I expected. 260 miles. Four hours. But I finally pulled up to my house in the darkness in the middle of the night at 2-something a.m. in the morning and got in my bedclothes and crawled into bed and I got this little gentle loving pat squeezing my arm. I was home. I was home. I was back in security. I was back into where I was intended to be. There was reception. There was comfort. There was well-being there. That's what God intends for us. You heard that maximum two steps forward, one back. I think that's a ratio. That's a biblical ratio with followers of Christ. We go about 20, and then we turn back about 10. And it's a long 10. It feels like 100. And you go, ain't no way he's going to let me come back. I'm right here, 10 steps back. But he's open. He says, come back. It's okay. And we beat ourselves up about that. I like what the writer of Hebrews said. You know, this partition that once stood in the way is now gone. He says, he characterizes it this way. And I'll just refer to it. I don't have it up on the board for you. We approach with confidence. Why? Because we have one who has been tempted in every way we are, yet without lapsing, yet without evading the target, we can approach with confidence, finding you, caress, mercy, grace. And it always outweighs sin. Always outweighs sin. And so repentance and confession are ongoing. I hope you remember that. I want to remember that in my life. We can always turn back because we always desire to go this way.
the way is open. We're mistaken sometimes thinking that it isn't. It is. It is. Grace is always there. I'd like to invite you now to think about what that personally means to you. What we, I'm going to ask you to do, invite you to do is that we pray a prayer of confession together as a group. That you repeat, to say the words that I say at the same time. They'll be up on the screen. And then we'll have a moment of silence and you can, you can reckon with God about your own moments, about your own 10 steps back, but acknowledging that he allows us back. So will you pray with me this prayer together as we say it together? Say with me, most merciful God, we confess and agree that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. We turn back toward you and desire living according to the image you gave us in the very beginning. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory and honor of your name. Amen. And I ask that you bow in silence and be specific with God in how you experience his love. Lord God, thank you for your comfortable confrontation. Thank you that Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. The truth, Lord, is that we have not loved you with our whole heart, that we have ignored the desire you have that we would reflect your image and that we can turn back to you, Lord, and be received freely so that we may do what we want to in following you and not want to do by our own natural inclinations. Lord, it's a struggle, and you know that. You came down here and experienced it, and we thank you for that miracle of defeating it for us. You rose from the dead, and you promised us that life. In Jesus' in name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.